Hello and welcome to the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field. Happy New Year and welcome to 2021. To kick things off this year, I am excited to bring you a conversation I had recently with founder of New Frontiers, Terry Virgo. We caught up to discuss, amongst other things, his reflections on the church during a time of crisis, what some of the lessons are that he's learned, and where are some of the concerns that he might have for the future health and well-being of the church as he sees it. It was a really fruitful, healthy, life-giving conversation, and I've been looking forward to sharing it with you for some time. We recorded the conversation back in early December and I thought that this would make a fantastic kickstarter to 2021. If you're enjoying the podcast please don't forget to like and subscribe and if you have any comments or encouragements you want to send my way you can do so by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. For now let's listen into the insights from someone who is surely a prophetic voice and apostolic father to the church, Terry Virgo. Enjoy. Often, Terry, when you speak, it does feel as though you're even, I mean, it was, it was only a few years ago that I spoke to you personally, but you are the sort of person that even when I heard you speak on platforms, you have this ability to make people feel like you're talking directly to them in a way that I, I don't think every preacher I've ever heard uh, has. Is that, have you been told that before? <laughs> well, uh, hi, Jez, good to chat to you. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that wasn't the best welcome. It's fine. I, um, I, I'm not sure that, that the way you've expressed that is very encouraging. Uh, I don't know that I've heard that specifically. I've had, uh, you know, lovely comeback over the years, I guess. People have been very encouraging. Uh, I don't know if I've heard it expressed just like that. But uh, Okay, well, I think from what I suppose I'm, I'm getting, to, getting at with that comment is... Um, as someone who's been recognised as being an apostolic father of a movement and family of churches, there does seem to be a, a fathering grace on you to the point that my my experience of, has been that when you speak, people quite quickly feel as though this is a father talking to them rather than just someone expositing the Bible, though you obviously you do that very well as well. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about the apostolic gift in time. Um, Terry, why don't, as we get cracking, why don't we start off with just, uh, I'd love to know what's going on with you at the moment, perhaps something that you've learned either about yourself or leadership in the past six months um, that can kind of ease us into our conversation today. Okay, Jess, well, uh, fascinating that this last year, uh, my diary was filled with uh, a very, very full program. Um, I think maybe one of the fullest programs I've ever had, sort of almost wall to wall, a lot of travel and so on. And uh, Wendy and I were in South Africa, very busy program the last weekend, lots of hugging and handshaking, uh, flew back through the night, got into Heathrow and everybody was standing at a distance and the motorways were kind of empty. And I think the next day, complete lockdown. So it's been a very unusual, for all of us, I know, a very unusual year. Uh, and for me, uh, just the, the whole program gone, of course. Um, and quite early on, I felt God prompted me to write. Um, interesting, you started by asking about books. I, I'm asked, are you writing a book? And I always say, no, not time to write a book. And it just came home to me, this would be a very good thing to do. And I'm really grateful to God because it gave me a discipline each day. There was something I needed to do. And so each morning 
I'd go into the uh, my study and get on with writing the book, which I've quite recently finished. And so now I'm learning uh, freshly how to spend my time. And I, I'm doing uh, little videos each morning, about three mornings a week. And I'm getting a growing number of um, preachers, you know, online preaching, which I don't enjoy terribly. Uh, it's, it's weird being in an empty room preaching to an iPhone um, or to mm. a, uh, a camera down at the church building where we've got a little studio. And so it's been an unusual year for all of us. I think one of the things I've enjoyed is that I can have more time um, in the mornings for my, my worship and prayer time, which I have always enjoyed, but I, I don't have to go to the office. And so I can, I can have longer. I can be um, um, more refreshed in the presence of God and, and give myself to prayer more. I've, I've enjoyed that actually quite a lot. And, uh, and as I say, the writing uh, has been quite a big part. And uh, I'm trying to make contact with people. It's been good to make a few phone calls. I think I need to do that a few, a bit more to be in touch with people. I've always enjoyed uh, some lovely friendships all over. So I have had phone calls to India and Africa and America and Canada. Um, as I say, I think I probably would like to do more, more than I have, but it's always a joy to catch up with people and try and be an encouragement to them. So that's mm. quite a part of it. Wendy and I are both very uh, enjoying good health and uh, we, we get out for walks as often as we can. Uh, so otherwise you get very shut in. And we found some walks around this part of the world that we didn't know were there. So that's been refreshing too. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, let's talk a bit about your book then, since you mentioned that. Um, is that is this a book that you've wanted to write for a while uh, how did you come to sense that this was the right time uh, i guess pre-lockdown you're starting to sense this is the right time to do that um and what's the book about yeah i mean i i'm so grateful to god i know when i first wrote restoration of the church which was the first book i ever wrote i, mean, I never dreamed i'd be writing books um never occurred to me um and actually arthur wallace uh, whose name some of you might know um, wonderful man of God, he, he encouraged me to write. He said, you must write. And uh, I kind of laughed. And then one or two other people said, no, if you write, books will get where you won't get. And I'm so grateful that I ever did. And I wrote Restoration of the Church. And it, it went into many, many uh, reprintings and lots of different languages. And it's opened doors all over the place. So, yeah, I'm very happy uh, doing books. And I just haven't had time lately. Uh, but when this happened, I thought, I do have time. Um, and that, for me, this time, the story of Moses uh, is one that I've preached on. Uh, and I, I, I love that story, that journey, if you like. And, uh, and some years ago, when I was uh, in the Brighton church, I felt God said to me, you're taking these people on the journey. And I felt he led me to go through with Moses. And so whenever I was there, and I was often away, we picked up the story of Moses and uh, and I just went through it. It just turned the page to see what happens next. And I never, I never actually finished. Nigel Ring uh, always joked with me, you left Moses in the wilderness. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I said to him, so did God. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, and so when I started writing uh, the earlier, you know, probably half, if not a little more of the book, 
was built from uh, sermons I'd already preached. So that made it simpler to write it. And then the last part, you know, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed kind of getting into that world again, the challenges that he faced, the setbacks, you know, the blockage of the, the Red Sea, which made the way through it impossible. And then God breaking through. Uh, some of the setbacks of relational difficulties when people turned against him, he had to carry that. The battle with mm. Balak, the cursing uh, of Balaam, which he couldn't do, um, Korah's rebellion. There's all sorts of terrific stuff. And uh, I think so many of these experiences are instructive. And it says in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things happened to them, talking about that journey. Um, as, our, as an example, and were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so I'm, I'm taking that line, you know, we are in the end times and these things were written to instruct and guide us. So I'm hoping mm. it'll be a blessing. Mm. Wow. No, I, I, it's funny you say that because I've often associated um, the book of the book of Exodus and the story of Moses with your preaching it feels like um, th there's been themes in there that um, God's spoken to you to speak to others that have really helped um, and been a, seem to have formed quite a major part of some of the messages that you've had. Um, I guess in part is there is there a, there's some what's the word I'm looking for. Um, we, we resonate deeply with the themes in Exodus because it's such a powerful book. The themes of Exodus are the themes of humanity coming out of sin. But particularly as someone who's been quite instrumental um, in the restoration of the church, um, are there things from the book of Moses that have always kind of, I don't know, help, helped you in the early days when you were rethinking through what are the people of God? What is the church? Who are we supposed to be? Um, and was that did that form quite a core part of your early burden as a pastor of what you felt God calling you to do yes I, I genuinely did feel led to it as happened at the, the, the Downs Bible weeks I'd often find God put a figure uh, like Nehemiah uh, you know the rebuilding the city and others like that Joseph and his he's being cast out but he was a genuine uh, charismatic he was a vision seer and he stuck to his vision and I, I've often found these stories have lived with me and I've I've really felt I'm not just preaching the Bible. I feel, no, this is who we are. This is what we're going through. And uh, I think that's a, an excellent question. And I really, I really have felt, and working on it again, found it refreshing to think, yeah, that's that. Because they were just a, a crowd of slaves. They, they'd been crushed. Uh, and, uh, and they carried some of that negativity with them. And it, it took time to reshape them so that by the time... Moses hands them over to Joshua. They're a disciplined army. Uh, so he saw them transformed. And you get some very key uh, chapters where, for instance, Jethro uh, sees them all uh, lining up to ask uh, Moses what to do. You know, they're all, the whole thing, the whole nation, it seems, are queuing up with their questions. And Jethro says, mm. hey, what are you doing? You should, you should break this down. This is going to kill you. And it will kill mm. them. And I remember... Many years ago, when I was still at Seaford, um, I read that passage and I thought, we ought to do something like that. We ought to. And I started house, house groups uh, on the back of reading that passage. And that was kind of years ahead of before house groups became uh, fairly normal. And it was such a blessing. I was still in close contact with my old Baptist pastor 
And he said, you can't do that. You'll lose your church. And mm. it was just the opposite. We gained leadership. We gained intimacy uh, into small homes and so on. And, uh, and so in many of the experiences, I mean, Moses' own challenges at the beginning, his setbacks, um, you know, the fact that it all goes wrong. There's a wonderful chapter which begins, thus says the Lord, let my people go, and ends with, why did you ever send me? Um, and, uh, you know, you really do, as a leader, I feel you can find yourself um, in, in the story of Moses. But then you do see how he wins there, uh, gradually, gradually winning their confidence. Though there are many times when he's the guy who carries the burden um, of their backsliding and so on. So, yeah, I think it's a wonderful story, wonderful story. And we can, I think we can line up with it because, yeah, we were all born. And then they have these encounters like Mount Sinai, where there's an explosion of incandescent mm. light everywhere and thunder and trumpet blowing. And, and, and then God marries them. He says, no, you're going to be my betrothed. It's wonderful. I love, I love the story. And, uh, yeah. and yet their disloyalty and Moses yeah. standing in the gap. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's a wonderful story. Oh well, um, I want to I want to pick up some of those themes, but uh, let's just come back because you, you you said something there that for someone like me growing who's only ever really well became a Christian uh, in the early two thousands and so have only ever really known a New Frontiers Church. I think I got saved into a New Frontiers Church. I got baptized into a New Frontiers Church, and yet you, you said something quite curious there. Back in the day, we didn't have home groups. So what did the church do for midweek community? <laughs> well, I think. We have lived, you know, it's obviously I'm, I'm not as young as I was. It's been many years. And so when I, when I was converted, uh, it was church life was vastly different. And anything that ever happened, happened at the building. And, and church planting, I mean, starting new churches was virtually unknown. Uh, nobody started new churches. The church was the church. You know, you were Church of England or Baptist or Methodist or whatever. The church was there. And so when, when the Holy Spirit began to be poured out, the charismatic movement started, if you like, back in mm. the 60s. Um, and then I came out, uh, you know, late 60s, 70s, and we were, we were getting filled with the Spirit. I was laying hands on people, uh, and it was like new wine. And, and some were trying to contain it in the old wineskins. But I felt, no, we, we've got to have a new wineskin, because what we wanted was to rediscover New Testament church life, and you could not do it. I mean, my old Baptist church, I, I mean, I loved, I loved it. I loved the pastor, he was a lovely Bible preacher, but it was ever so formal. And when you went to church, you wore a suit mm. and a tie. And, uh, and you know, you, the people sort of went straight to the back row and that kind of thing. And the later you came, the further forward you had to sit. Um, it was a completely different thing to going to someone's home, for instance, and many of our churches started as house churches where there is no back row and where you're on Christian name terms from the beginning and you don't dress up. And so, I mean, a completely new culture. We, we started church with a completely new culture, as, mm. apart from the worship and the gifts of the Spirit and all that was happening. Uh, so the thing of new churches was a, a quite a phenomenon and um, at first we were quite harshly opposed because you know what are you doing starting new churches but they grew quite rapidly um, from small house churches 
so then people started hiring halls and then buying and building warehouses or redundant mm. buildings or whatever. Um, and we saw the progress, but it started, uh, you know, church life was very, very different when I got saved. Mm, wow. And it, and it feels very, very different now to, to what you were describing then. Uh, the, the amount that God has done, not just through movements like ours, but even in the historic institutional churches, yeah. as, as society's changed, there have been a lot of change as well in the churches as well. Um, I'm tempted to ask this next question, which could take us completely away from Moses, but we'll come back to Moses because I'm really interested. Um, what do you think God is doing now in the church or where are some of the areas that you think god is shaping and shaking up the church obviously a massive uh world global global catastrophe like the coronavirus crisis is going to make some lasting impacts on the body of christ as long as we're willing to hear it and respond to what the spirit's saying but what are some of the things that you sense the holy spirit saying to to you personally but also to the churches you're involved with i think it's given us opportunity to stand back and think undoubtedly i think the thing i i am most nervous of and um have perhaps come to mind more clearly during the season is the danger of what i would call nominalism i don't know what else to call it but um for instance life groups have been fundamental to our uh, clinging to one another during the season of not being able to gather and uh, i i just find sometimes there is a, a the language you know, we, we have said at the beginning, and often say publicly, uh, the apostles were told, go and make disciples of all the nations. That, that was the commission, go and make disciples. And then I've said many times publicly in preaching, and they went and planted churches. And I said they instinctively knew that was the way to go. They didn't start a discipleship movement, if you like. They started churches. And, of course, Jesus a disciple, like a dozen guys together, and maybe maybe more, 120 in the upper room. And uh, they understood it has to be done in community. Uh, it's not just um, a discipling one-on-one-on-one. -on -one -on -one. It, it's a group, a group thing. But as I've sometimes heard guys talk about, now, you know, don't forget, keep in touch with your life group. I've sometimes thought the language of life groups has not always had much to do with discipling. And I think... I have always said life groups are a context for discipling. And I, I really feel that's a danger, that life groups can be just, well, it's the place you hang out. You have a cup of tea with friends, which I don't despise. I mean, community is, is fine. But I think we need to be far more intentional about making disciples and reproducing leadership. Uh, I, think, I think we touch our hat to it. But I, I mean, obviously, every church is somewhat different. I don't want to. This is a bit dangerous. I'm in danger of being broad brushstroke here. And I know my, some churches are very intentional. But I think we probably need to become more intentional. And, and I, I've noticed that verse uh, in Hebrews, where it says, you have become dull of hearing. By now, you should be teachers. Uh, and I think, hey, that's an interesting verse at the moment that many people would never even consider that they might have their own small group. They just go to small group. But it should be a context where people are all the time being raised up to become, if you like, small group leaders or to reproduce the ministry more. Now, 
that's one of the areas that I felt there can be, as I said, nominalism, because I think small groups were started with the idea of making disciples. I think sometimes they're just the place you hang out. And, uh, and as I say, hanging out, there's nothing wrong with that in a sense, but I think we're looking to reproduce ministry. So that's the thing I've been concerned about. I think another, another area, unless you'd like to stop there for a moment. No, no, go, go. I think, I think another area is, and I've always tried to kind of resist it myself when I was leading New Frontiers. I used to say to the guys, try to avoid the language joining New Frontiers. Um, rather think about and talk about receiving apostolic prophetic ministry, because that's biblical. Uh, joining New Frontiers isn't, where's that in the Bible? That's not, that's not a Bible concept that you join something other than the local church or the global church. But what is biblical is coming within the sphere of an apostolic ministry. And that's how we have biblically vindicated the whole idea of, uh, if you like, a group of churches. But I think sometimes, again, lately, you can, you can meet a church that says, I'm in whichever group we're speaking about. And then you're looking for the impact of apostolic ministry there. And it's not all that apparent. And sometimes what I would regard as quite important apostolic values are not very visible. Uh, I, I, and, and they don't tend to think about in the way that we did at the beginning when I wrote Restoration of the Church. Um, laying an apostolic foundation was our language. Uh, and I think we worked quite hard at it. I think, you know, we've grown and all the rest of it. But I think the danger, of, and I would just call it nominalism again, that, um, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I've said, don't, I don't use the language. But it's very easy to drift into we're in New Frontiers or whichever group you might be in. Um, I mean, I probably used it myself many times over the years, uh, but try to avoid it because it gets away from what we're actually trying to do. And to say, well, I mean, we're in New Frontiers. How did you come in? What, what, what did you talk out? To what degree did you say, yeah, we will receive apostolic ministry? How are you going to work that through? How is the apostle doing that? How is the prophetic coming in? Those were the things we fought for uh, and we worked great hard at, at the beginning. And I think over the years, when I think New Frontiers grew a lot, uh, when we were in the stone list for time, we multiplied a lot. And I, and I think, uh, you know, on my watch, I'm not trying to put the blame elsewhere, but on my watch, probably a number of churches uh, became part of us who didn't necessarily strongly understand what they were doing. And I think that's still out there. And, uh, and I think another thing about that, although it's secondary, but it is involved, it's possible for people to have problems with New Frontiers. Uh, I'm not saying people do have, but it's possible to have. Uh, and you can, you can speak against an organisation, but you can't speak against a person without sinning. And, and without either having going to speak to that person or personally rep repenting or for Terry Virgo to repent because he's got a problem. But it's easy to say, 
don't like New Frontiers. Uh, as a Christian, you shouldn't be able to say, well, I don't like Terry Virgo, I don't like, you know. So if you keep it personal, it keeps biblical realities personal and alive. And uh, I remember years ago, I was doing something for a Pentecostal denomination. I was just doing a conference for them. And I was staying overnight in the home of um, a, a guy who worked for them. And he said, one of the things I love about New Frontiers, I'm well, going back many decades, he said, I met many of your pastors. He said, I've never met a cynical one. And I thought, that is so thrilling, but what would you mean? He said, well, you never hear them talk negatively. And I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but it sounded great. And then we, we, I stayed in his home, so we were talking some more. And then he began to talk against his own church movement, quite, quite uh, negative. And I realized what he meant as he was kind of rubbishing his own movement. He was kind of saying, I don't, I didn't, don't meet that with your guys. Now I think that's because we were, you know, very relational. That's the way we've always been very relational. And I don't think, I don't think it's in our ranks now, but I think the more you come under a name, you know, we're in new frontiers or whatever, it will be possible in the ranks you know, among the people, for them to say, I don't much like whatever we're in. Um, but so let's try where we can to say, I'm working with, say with Newground, say, I'm working with Dave Holden and his team. So that it keeps it personal, it keeps it relational. So that's another thing I would say, nominalism, churches that say we're part of, but you think, wow, have they really understood the values? You know, I travel around quite a lot. I'm in and out of lots of churches. And I think, I'm not sure they, you know, they're really grasping it. And then I think probably thirdly, the whole thing of being a charismatic church. Again, I think, you know, we would say New Frontiers, a charismatic movement. But um, that whole phenomenon of the presence of the spirit, including expectation of the gifts of the spirit, which I think, when the charismatic movement started and we started, that was that was the thing that, that made us different to all the other churches, that when you came, there would be these manifestations of the spirit. Um, and I think, um, I was talking to a pastor recently who, um, whose church I'm familiar with, and he said, oh, such and such a person, they'd left us, he said, and they've gone to the local Anglican church. He said, I don't understand. He said, they're not even charismatic at the Anglican church. And uh, I thought, hmm, I wonder how charismatic this church is, really. I wonder, how, how, how do you mean we're charismatic when, uh, I don't know when they ever, when they last had uh, manifestations of the spirit in the meetings. And so I think we take the word, uh, in a kind of nominal way, we're charismatic, and uh, and so I think I think these are the things that when you ask me, you know, what are you what are you aware of? What is kind of I don't know if you expressed it this way, but what's troubling you? What you're seeing? Um, those would be some of the things that that come to mind when you say that. Nice celebrate mm. the growth. I mean, it's breathtaking, and uh, what's happening globally. You know, it's just I'm I'm so proud of the guys. What we're doing is phenomenal. But these would be some mm. of the concerns I would have. Mm. 
Wow. Wow, Terry, that was amazing. And there's so much in there we could talk about. It's interesting, as you're, as you're speaking, it strikes me that the the concerns and pitfalls of a movement are the same concerns that a pastor has for his people in the church. And I suppose you'd expect that because a movement is just a movement of churches. But there seems to be a concern in you for, well, you use the word nominal, which I think, put, you know, you put the finger on the pulse there quite nicely. It's this the concern that people in our churches have become more consumeristic and more nominal in their faith and something like the the coronavirus crisis has probably um, polarized the church into two camps they're either going to lean he- more heavily into nominalism and consumerism or actually like you say they're going to realize what they need is an authentic dynamic expression of their own walk with Christ ex- expressing itself through the making of disciples and I, I we could talk about each of those three concerns that you've raised in, in detail because I think each of them are worth a conversation in its own right but the emphasis on life groups being a place that we we outwork the great commission of making disciples I've not heard it expressed as succinctly and as and as well as that. I think um, my observation is there's life groups are falling out of fashion and favour with people by and large because they have become a place for community where community is emphasised above disciple making. And of course, as you said, those, those things aren't bad. That's that's good. But um, in a consumer culture like ours, people think, well, I don't need that. I'll go do something else. I'll go join something else. I'll go have my needs met somewhere else. One of my concerns, I guess, as a as a younger pastor is how few older men, I would say older women, but I think it, it seems to be more a problem among older men, how few older men see themselves as fathers and uncles of younger men, coaching, encouraging, actively making disciples of them in their later years where they've been in church for decades, they've got wisdom, they've got gifts, they've got things to bring. Um, is that something that you would say has often been the case in your experience? Um, what would you say to help encourage those people who've been in churches for a long time to to lean back into um, disciple making against nominalism? And it might be actually, it's, you know, part of the answer is we need more expressions of the charismatic life because that keeps us hot. I don't know. It's a, I've, it's a lot of ideas and thoughts in this question. Um, make of it what you will. What are your reflections to what I've just said? <laughs> yeah. I, I like very much your the words you selected of coaching. Um, I think it's, it's a great idea to uh, almost use a fresh word because it, it just takes out from the religiousness, the sound of disciple. It's a very religious word in a sense. Uh, I remember a friend of mine wrote a book uh, called Go and Make Apprentices, uh, and that was very early on in my Christian life. But apprentice is a very good word. Coaching is an excellent word. Mentoring, it's quite good to get outside. And I think, again, your question is excellent of, you know, uncles, as you said, using family language, um, uncles uh, and coaching younger men. I think, I'm, I don't think we've encouraged that anywhere near as much as we, we could have done and we should have done. And I think, I think for... Guys who have, they don't even always realize how much they've learned over the years uh, in terms of what they could share. And it's such a delight to talk to an older brother or sister and draw out from them their experiences of God. You think, man alive, you've got a wealth of Mm. uh, walk with God, and yet that doesn't necessarily get heard well enough. And uh, and there aren't, you know, as you put it, young men drawing on that. And And I think there's probably a need for much more intentional um, 
out, outworking of these things to help, if you like, older men to understand they've got something to give. And, uh, and drawing out testimony is so refreshing. I think so often when people gather, if you, if you haven't sort of got yourself ready for it, it, it can be a, a room full of people chatting about you know, how'd you get on this week? Or oh, Tesco's I bumped into, or and uh, and I and, and I think to intentionally say now we want this week these through you you tell us how you how you became a Christian, and uh, just coming back to that personal testimony, it just brings Jesus into the room, and uh, and and a, a, a kind of a vulnerability. Uh, well, this is what happened to me when I met Jesus. And I think we almost need to find ways of, uh, because I think some get-togethers, you know, we say, what did I learn this week? What happened? And I think we need to bring Jesus into it. And I think people know that they know the Lord. They've got all sorts of experiences of the Lord. But if we don't intentionally draw people out, and for some it's just, how did you meet the Lord? I often I often ask people that, even you know, if we're just going having a lunch with some people um, and just getting to know them a little. Well, how did you come to the Lord? It just opens their heart and and reminds them of their affection for Him. And, and suddenly we're we're with Jesus now, uh, rather than uh, just chatting about the football or whatever. I mean, Christians can talk about anything. Nothing wrong with that. But we have a, a dimension, a phenomenal dimension which sometimes doesn't enter in. And I, and I think that people need to be encouraged uh, into sharing their life in God. That's the amazing thing that we have. I remember when I was at Bible college, amazingly, uh, the principal actually, he was, he was pastoring a church in Sussex, as it happened, uh, and principal of London Bible College. And one week in a, in a lecture, he said, I have in my in my uh, church, some fairly wealthy farmers and some businessmen who commute to London. And I've got some kind of uh, simple guys who work on the farm and stuff. He said, I'm, I'm trying hard to find things that I can kind of bridge their lives. And I sat I, even then, I mean, I'm back, I'm back in my 20s. I sat there thinking, You've got Jesus. <laughs> They've got eternal life. They're, they're the kingdom of God. And you're trying mm. to find something. I mean, literally, he was asking wow. ideas. Anybody got any ideas? What can we find that they've got in common? I thought mm. this is unbelievable. Um, you know, and if we don't, if we don't say, you know, how did, because, you know, a farmer, if you like, you know, a laborer who, who, who would say, well, I've got nothing much to say, they can tell you their answers to prayer and how they met Jesus that would blow you away. And, uh, mm. and I just feel we don't take the lid off enough to draw people mm. in their personal experiences of Jesus in. Now, again, forgive me, I'm generalizing and I'm expressing some of the things that slightly concern me. So I may be much too broad brushstroke. 
No, I think you generalise because things are generally true. <laughs> That's why it works, doesn't it? And you're absolutely right. I've I've had um, sessions where I've been at like an alpha table and heard very intellectual atheists spouting their reasons for unbelief. And then my friend who's a farmer just talk about his experience of Jesus and it floored them because ultimately it is the personal encounter absolutely. with Jesus. And, and, and actually, I think, and it's not wrong again, but in recent years, there's been a move in churches towards um, interest-based midweek groups as opposed to what was life groups bible studies and again although not wrong that can if we're not careful play into this cultural dynamic of we associate with people with whom we've got a lot in common overlooking and negating the fact that in the church what we should have in common is jesus and actually by talking about jesus it breaks the nominalism because it, you can't keep jesus at arm's length and just talk about religion you have to talk about what he's doing in your life right now for example i thought i was uh, i was in invited to uh, do something with the church that Steve Tibbetts Church of Catford and they they have I think diversified with their small groups and I think most of us these days think in terms of the three terms you know the spring the summer the autumn term and uh, but that, I think it's just one one of those terms they say now we're all going to work and they, they were going to go through Philippians and uh, I think they were going through eight weeks maybe four chapters two weeks each and and they they asked me to do a Saturday morning or a Saturday through a couple with all of their small group leaders as a kind of overview and introduction to Philippians, which I loved. I really loved doing it. And then I think Andrew Wilson, who works with them now, he had he had done the outwork, the outline of how to, how we're going to go through Philippians. So for one term, every every small group was going through the same thing. And it was going to be based on Philippians and they were teaching their people. And uh, I thought that was a good mix that on, on other, the other two terms, I think they were very diverse groups. But at least for one term, they were going to really teach the Bible and, and build from that. And I, I, thought, I thought, hey, that's a good idea. I think we've constantly been reviewing the whole uh, small group thing. But I, I thought that was very, very good. And then I was with Topi mm. Colioso. Um, and I love preaching in that. It's a very vibrant church. And uh, I chatting to him afterwards and so on. And, uh, and he talks about when people join the church, which again, I think is a big issue, that when we, when we, got, when we first started, uh, we, had, we had what was, we called it the commitment course, which is probably a terrible title. Uh, um, but it, it meant, you know, this is who we are because we're starting new churches and they're completely different to anything around. And so we felt we need to spell out this, you know, and so we had like, I think an eight week, uh, you had to go through this eight weeks before you became a member. So becoming a member was a pretty significant thing to do. And so people joined understanding this is what, you know, this is what it is. This is what you're joining. I think these days people can come in pretty simply and, uh, I was, I was shocked to hear recently, and I know it's not New Frontiers, but someone said to me that they'd heard Nicky Gumbel saying that in London, in HDB, I presume, this is second hand, but that's what I heard, that he would say, uh, I don't know if it's average, but fairly normal, people would come on a Sunday once in six weeks. Um, now that's before the virus and everything, that what coming once in six weeks was kind of what they they might even expect, which I I, I think 
I, I had heard in our own ranks, it might mm. be more like two or three times a month, which I, I mean, to myself, why wouldn't you be that? Now, there may be reasons for, obviously, people might miss sometimes. But missing would be, wow, how did you miss? Um, but I, I think, wow, the, the, the stat, you know, what's expected? It's not exactly New Testament Christianity. I'm not saying turning up on a Sunday is everything, but it's it's part of our being, who we are. Uh, so mm. I think that that uh, expectation and that kind of a, a, a degree of I'm a part of a body, I'm a member of a body, I'm a hand, I'm an eye. Anyway, the way Choppy was, was saying, when people joined, he would say, now how, how do you think you were going to serve amongst us when you joined? I thought, that's interesting. So, you know, do you want to join the, 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 the sound team or the children's team or the welcome team or the and he said when people join this concept is immediately introduced how, how which team do you want to join and then he said when you've joined a team you've got all kinds of well uh, are you reliable can you do turn up uh, relationally good with people so all kinds of discipleship things surface but that the ethos is when you joined us you know, you'll probably want to join us. I tell you why you will want to serve. So that mm. I thought it was a brilliant approach. Uh, the people yeah. they they realise that they're not just coming in to sit in the back row because that's what we came out of. <laughs> uh, mm. When I was a when I was a Baptist, we had a terrific preacher, and I was at you know Holland Road Baptist Church, we had quite a famous Baptist church because he was a great preacher, and he gets sort of seven hundred on a Sunday. Um, you know, it was well-known church, but all all he went for was to hear him preach. That was it. And so making disciples, small groups, I wasn't even in it. You just were going to go there on a Sunday to hear him. Um, uh, but you, he would actually hope you'd be there morning and evening every Sunday. But, but that was all there was to it. And I think, wow. hey, I came out of that because, hey, we came to the Holy Spirit. And wow, and we're going to make disciples yeah. and we're going to go on a mission. Yeah. Um, it's wow. going to go into the world. It was all sorts of things that were not at all present at the at the beginning, um, right. and they're they're still there. I mean, we've got terrific people going and planting uh, churches, and you know, praise God. But yeah. I'm not sure but, culture is as as among us in the same way. No, I, I. Funnily enough, you remind me of something I, I once heard uh, Joel, your son, say when someone was asking him about baptism in the spirit and charismatic gifts, and uh, I think someone was saying, you know, why do we, why do you insist on these things when they're not necessary for salvation? And I think he said something along the lines of, well, it depends how saved you want to be. <laughs> you know, isn't? Do we think of salvation as getting across a line of faith and going, phew, I'm, I'm safe now, I'm destined for heaven, or is salvation actually about allowing the life of the to come to renew your present as much as it does promise you a different future and it does seem that you know the local church is supposed to be this outpost of that future condition and future state where the life of there is supposed to be expressed and outworked and it's interesting you touch on on serving and belonging in that or being part of a people to the extent that you serve which is one of the things that perhaps in the last you know however long this crisis has been going on for people haven't been in their churches it's one of the things that is almost 
instantly stopped for people. If you were part of a serving team and that was how you served the whole, it stopped. And the, the putting on of a church service became the domain of a few tech types <laughs> or someone with their iPhone and a, and a recorder, a microphone. And, and I think what's interesting is that even when we've tried to have some in-person regathering services, getting people back onto rotors has been quite hard. I remember hearing someone say recently, church is like a helicopter. You've got to be careful not to get caught in the rotors. Yeah. And, um, and, and actually, by emphasising how are you going to serve this people rather than which rotor are you going to join is perhaps one of the new ways that we need to talk about. Come on, church in the, in the post-COVID era, we got to serve one another. That doesn't mean that that's not the same as joining a rotor necessarily. Um, well, you know, you, you touched as well there on um, charismatic gifts. And actually, I'll tell you what, before we come on to, to your third concern, let's talk about the, the second concern you had about people joining new frontiers rather than joining individuals. Because as a pastor, that's often that's linked with the concerns that you were just sharing about membership as well. I've joined this organization, this church, I've done their membership course, tick, signed a line, but I'm not necessarily receiving their pastoral oversight. I'm not receiving their teaching. I'm shopping around on the internet for my own music, for my own sermons, my own preacher. Um, what would you say to people uh, about, you know, that what it means to belong to a church as opposed to, you know, the similarities, I guess, between what you're saying about joining New Frontiers and joining churches, um, because much of what you touch on is the pastor's ache and the pastor's concern, like one in six, two in four. How did that? That's not church. How, how can we help people see what it is that we're we think we're trying to build and we're trying to get people caught up in that? Have you got any just thoughts on tips on that? I think um, the pastors getting together as and communicating as as much as they can, so that the the the, the culture is embraced by all the leadership, uh, and then that it's up to those groups of elders to see that's being communicated uh, in their ranks. Uh, I think it's possible that these days there might be churches that you know the pastor knows that we belong to whichever. Um, but the people don't necessarily. I think that that can happen, uh, and there are some movements. I, I when we first got started, I came across uh, a thing called MFI, which was quite a joke because we were NFI, and um, so it's a big movement. Ministers for Eternal International, it was, uh, and it's huge. It goes all around the world. It was both based in Portland, Oregon. A guy called Dick Iverson, who was a, a really quite superb guy. Um, but that whole philosophy was that the pastors belonged to it, but the people would not have necessarily even known that they were part of it. And uh, and I think also I remember when we were getting just first starting and uh, I, we were meeting people in the USA and all these things were new. And I, I started traveling over there from time to time. And, and, I, and I met a church where I, I, I got to know the pastor, he preached, uh, uh, in England, I was a good guy. And then I met some of the people and, uh, you know, we began to talk about apostolic ministry and so on. And I said, you know, is this church associated with an apostolic guy? And they said, um, yeah, I think there's a guy who comes in. Uh, uh, he I think he speaks to the leaders when he comes. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever, met, I've ever met him. He said, but very often after he's come, we change things. And... Um, 
uh, he, he assumed that this guy had spoken to the leaders and suggested changes and they'd made the changes. But from the people's point of view, he was completely anonymous. They mm -hmm. did not know him. Um, whereas I think in the, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, uh, you get the sense that, that, the, that Paul knew the people. You know, he could name lots of names. And uh, quite in relationally, you know, you talked earlier about uncles and aunts and stuff. And, and Paul talks about such and such, oh, who's a mother to me. And uh, I think that, again, with growth, numerical growth, that presents the challenge. But I think that knowing, knowing uh, the leader or the, the apostolic guy or somebody in his team pretty intimately as a church, I think is important. And I think mm. to try and retain that is is challenging, uh, but I think it's is I think it's great to know people. Now, again, it can happen when you have, you know, your your Bible weeks and so on. I I still get letters from people who say, you know, I was with you at Stonely, and you may not know me, but I know you very well, and so on. And I think John Wimber said to me years ago, um, it's a, a, some people he said have got a fathering gift, like he had. And he's, he got a church of like 5,000 in Anaheim in Los Angeles. And he said, people speak to me like I'm their father. And uh, they, they, they'll say sometimes to me, I, I know you don't know me, but I know you. And uh, he said, oh, I do know you. Sit back there, don't you? <laughs> he says that's so joked about it with me. But the, there was a, a fathering gift that sometimes can carry a big crowd that feels like father, but there's not an intimate knowledge. But I think it's better if there is, you know, there are moments that when people talk with you and you get to know them and you hear them and uh, there's a genuine engagement with that apostolic or the prophetic or the evangelistic, you know, we need to think team, um, but people feel joined, relationally joined. And uh, I think maybe that we need to work on that more. And obviously, mm. It's easy for me to compare it to the very beginning uh, when we were all in Sussex and I was in and out of all these churches virtually every other week kind of thing. Um, so one got to know people at depth on a regular basis. Mm, mm, that's really helpful. Uh, you, you mentioned a few times earlier on this idea of laying apostolic foundations what or apostol the value, apostolic values. What would be... Uh, help for, for people who perhaps aren't too familiar with even the, the language or concept of apostle or apostolic ministry in an individual's life. I think for a lot of people, they would perceive, oh, we're part of this group and there is this apostolic figure who, who helps steer the group of churches or family that we're part of. Um, what would it what does it look like for an individual to, to be part of a church that receives apostolic um, ministry like that? I think there are several aspects. I think some is the actual objective teaching that it says in the early church uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching um, and I think one just has to be aware that it was a phenomenon that these people 3,000 ex-Jews I mean still Jewish ethnically but are now part of a new community uh, and their, their former uh, way of doing their religious life was locked to the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, Sabbath keeping. It was all, the way they honored God 
was attached to a whole load of values and the way they did it. Now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what the apostles taught was radically different to what, mm. I mean, it was rooted in the old. There was some continuity, but there was also a lot of discontinuity. And so they had to understand, uh, you know, the temple's not significant anymore. Sacrifice is over. And we're not under law anymore. And that's, they would have had to have taught who, who you are, your community, uh, our citizenships in heaven. So I think a lot of apostolic teaching is in the epistles. And Jesus, you know, we know that the New Testament is more explicit than the Old Testament. I mean, everybody would agree that. But then Jesus said to the apostles, I've got more to say to you, um, but you couldn't receive it yet. You know, things like, effectively, when he said, I am the vine, you're the branches. I mean, when there's a guy sitting next to you, you know, kind of six foot tall, and says, I'm a tree, you're a branch, you think, yeah. Uh, and, and then he said earlier, he said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you think, what? And he says, many turn back. So there were things Jesus had to say, which you couldn't understand while he was in the flesh. And so he said mm -hmm. to them, I've got many more things to say to you, but you can't receive them. When the spirit comes, he'll lead you. He'll take what's mine and reveal it to you. So that's the promise. The Holy Spirit would tell the apostles that he was speaking to these more things. And so Paul says in Ephesians 3, mysteries hidden, previously hidden, now revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So the, here are these mysteries, these apostolic mysteries, which are to do with you know, Christ in you, the great mystery, and, and the Jews and the Gentiles one, previously hidden, now, now, now known. And, and all these New Testament uh, apostolic teachings, you are justified. I mean, if the apostles hadn't told us, we wouldn't know what the cross meant. You know, yeah. So he's, he's dying on a cross. Poor guy, I wonder what that's all about. Now, the apostles tell us, but they tell us not only that he died, that we might be forgiven. They tell us when he died, you died too. You died to sin. You died to law. You're a new creation. Now, I honestly believe a lot of Christians who don't understand apostolic doctrine. They don't. If you know, if we mm. said hands up, all here who have died <laughs> to the congregation, a lot of people scratch their heads and think, oh. But I think. That's what we want to work at. And that's why I wrote God's Lavish Grace, for instance. You know, let's set it out. Let's understand we're not under law. We're under grace. We're not in Adam. We're in Christ. And these are apostolic teachings that can form a people who don't battle with condemnation. They're not constantly being dragged down because they've understood something. Their heads come up and it creates a culture which, which can go on world mission. Because if you're, ah, oh, we're not worthy, we're not going to go and win anybody. But if, if we've understood, and I think our evangelistic success in terms of church growth and so on has somewhat been due to the fact, hey, we're free, we're, we're accepted, we're beloved, let's go and tell people mm. about this. So apostolic teaching of who we are in Christ, these, I think, this is what, the apostle then i think i mean we could talk a, lot, a long time about it but i think the apostle also does catch up the people on apostolic mission i mean the way dave 
is constantly saying to the British churches, come on, we're involved in France, we're involved in Holland, we're involved, and, and, and lifts their horizon. is so mm. inspiring to people uh, who thought, oh, I just go to St. Blogs or whatever. No, we're a part of a group. We're on the move. We want to, you know, we've planted into the Hague. We're planting into Delft. We're fighting for Maastricht. We're in this together. See, apostolic lifts people's gaze, which, you know, you live with that all the time. Mm. Excellent. So beautiful. And actually, I really liked how um, I, I think it's it's quite popular these days and, and not not inappropriately so, but it's popular to use the language of identity and getting our identity straight. But actually, um, the language you used of understanding who you are in Christ, you know, this is your identity, of course, but it's 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 always and only ever as a result of your rootedness in him. So let's draw that out. And that's that's wonderful. I, I guess one of the other things you'd, you'd probably say or you you may even have been about to go on to talk about it is um, linked to your third concern for the church at the moment, which is the vitality of charismatic or spirit-filled living for, for Christians and for churches. Can you say a little bit more? And maybe that this is where we jump back into the Moses story as well and can come full circle because I know you've heard, uh, I've heard you talk before uh, from the Exodus story about what it is that made the, the people of God distinct from all the nations on, in the world is that they had the presence of God among them. And for us in the church, that looks like being the temple now that has the spirit in it, the group of people. Um, what are some of your reflections building on your third concern and on apostolic ministry then where it comes to charismatic life in the church at the moment? Yeah, I, th I think that, again, I, I think you've, you've really nailed the question so very well. Uh, I think the massive privilege of being a people of God's presence is huge. And uh, I think, as you say, it's the thing Moses, Moses, I'm not going anywhere if your presence doesn't go with us, because that's what makes us distinct. And, and I really do believe that. And I think we've got to fight for this awareness of the presence of God. This is our portion. And I think we, 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 uh, we get a bit too glib uh, and, and uh, we need to be reminded constantly of this amazing privilege of the presence of God. And, uh, I remember reading the story of Jack Hayford. I don't know if you've ever heard of that wonderful Pentecostal guy. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, the musical called Come Together, which I was all going back too far, sorry. <laughs> but it, he was quite sorry. outstanding, brother. And uh, he actually said that one day he went into his church building and there was a mist in there. It was an empty building. And he, he, he's the pastor, he happened to be in there. And he opened the, the door of the auditorium and there was a kind of a mist in there. And uh, he went on his knees and uh, he, he met with God in a pretty profound way. And, and the church became world famous and uh, out of it came this magnificent musical called Come Together. Um, but, it, you know, we don't often get a mist, but there, there was the phenomenon of God's presence there. And I was once in the USA and I was watching uh, a television on Sundays where you get you get you know loads and loads of Bible preachers. You can turn turn channels like click 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 click, and there's another 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 another. And I found Jack Hayford, and it was his church, and they're worshiping, and it's you know it's all on television for I don't know thousands to see, and they're worshiping, and he stopped it on television in front of everybody, and he said, "Come on, we're not worshiping here." <laughs> 
and um, he, he, he actually sat on the steps of the platform and just chatted to, to Mike, I suppose, really, chatted to the people, said, come on, we're here to worship and so on. Just a little beautiful pastoral exhortation. Mm. Come on, let's remember what we're doing. And, uh, and then they began to worship again. And uh, I, I feel, I think maybe, maybe in our lack of religiousness, um, and, and you know we've deliberately turned away from religiousness. Maybe we've become too casual. Maybe we've uh, failed to realize what we're doing. Uh, you know, pick up a guitar and off we go. And I, and I think we just need to capture the wonder of what we're doing, uh, how we worship. Uh, I heard a guy, um, I was recording recently of a, a guy who spoke actually to a group of British pastors, I wasn't present, but I, I saw his, and he's from South America, he's got one of these massive churches. And uh, he said, they asked him what were the principles he'd built on. And uh, he said to me, he said to us all, he said, uh, I'm not a great preacher. And, and to be honest, that was fairly evident. But he said, these are the things we go for. And one of them, he said, I felt we gathered to meet with the king. And he said, I, I found that. He said, very often, we, we, he said, we South Americans, we're very casual about timing and stuff. He said, we start our meetings with, you know, we start the meeting and a lot of people aren't there. And they gradually drift in and drift in. And, uh, and then he said, I had to go to a, an occasion where I think the president or some very uh, high up person in their nation was there. And, and they all had to be seated, obviously, before he arrived, because... You know the president's coming, and they were all they're all seated, uh, and and then the president came and they all stood and the president walked in, and it, and then he kind of reflected on it and thought, we don't do that, uh, we gather to worship, and then the people drift in, and so he said, I stopped it. He said uh, I I went back to the church and he said I risked it because he said I knew. He said there are other churches nearby. He said, we're not going to do that anymore. And he said, you know, if you're not there when we start, we won't let you in for, I think he gave a kind of delay of, I don't know, 10 minutes, quarter of an hour. And then if you want to drift in, but I mean, he nailed it. And now people turn up and, and he said, they, they are always there on time. And the, I mean, they're thousands and the worship is phenomenal. So I mean, it was just an in, interesting illustration, really, not, I just I know I know it's like that so many places it's kind of scary I've always feel sorry for the worship leaders as they look out on a congregation that's kind of thin <laughs> yeah. and then by the time you stand up and I can look around as the preacher I think gosh what's happening and then by the time I stand up to preach the place is crowded and I think we have we're like that we drift in mm. and I, that's so widespread uh, Paul Reed once said that's the price you pay for the grace message um, that may be quite an insightful comment, but we, we are casual. And, mm. and I think behind it, there's somehow this consciousness, our expectation is not terribly high. Mm. Um, we, 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 we don't anticipate anything phenomenal, really. Mm. And uh, mm. I think, so we, we come when we can. Now, obviously, things can happen you know you've got a family of three or four kids one of them suddenly sick or something and you turn up late but that's we don't want to be harsh 
But when you realise there are people that every week they drift in, and and I think if that becomes the culture, uh, uh, but I think then that whole sense there's, and so we sort of accommodate it, and 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 then maybe the guy who leads the worship is somewhat accommodating it. So let's get started, and uh, I think I think we need to refresh ourselves in the conscious awareness of what we're doing and then mm. anticipate his presence and again you know we've been here before so i don't want to keep laboring it but our choice of songs if we don't sing meaningful songs we're not helped and uh, there's a lot of songs out there that don't say much at all and i think we just need to be wise in the songs we choose uh, you know, I think I've said this before, I'm in danger of banging the same old drum, so I won't go there now. I like but I it. do think, you know, there are some wonderful songs that bring you to the presence of God. And, mm. and sometimes we're not singing them. And to be honest, when you do sing songs full of truth about God and our relationship with him, you can see what's happening in the meeting. You, you can observe uh, people drawing near to God. It's it's observable. But when you sing songs that don't go there, um, expectation begins to drift. Uh, and so I think being conscious, we're coming to him, really, really singing to him with songs that really express your heart. I remember Barney Coombs decades ago, he was a Baptist, was charismatic, beautiful man. And he said, he said, what is worship? He said, it is singing what you want to say to God. And that really, I mean, that kind of helped me from the beginning. I don't want to sing a song that isn't saying what I want to say to God. And I don't mean me individually, but I mean, me, I, as a believer, this is the sort of thing I want to say is you're wonderful. You, you, know, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension like nothing ever seen i mean i sing it at home day after day i'm singing to this great god and i go to church and sing rubbish and i think i don't want to do it <laughs> and so that that's stopping our expectation of meeting with god so i think there are contributory mm. factors and then the thing that gets discussed so much which again i don't know if i want to labor it again is i think people have deliberately um, stopped spiritual gifts or have allowed it to happen um, so that we are nominally charismatic uh, many many churches have they don't know when they last heard someone speak in tongues or interpret or prophesy um, and i think wow we are drifting and i think that i'm afraid that is true in a number of places mm, wow wow uh, there's there's inevitably going to be um consequences and implications for every decision you make in church life as a leader isn't there and uh and you can yeah and so it's often very hard you know trying to what's the, the old phrase about trying to please all the people all the time but actually as pastors we're not trying to please people we're trying to build healthy vibrant churches yeah. and if we if we overlook so much of the the blueprints and the instructions in the new testament in favor of it's always that 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 tension it seems to me in the conversation between the culture that you're in the in the time that you're in and the word of god all the time because as as you rightly said we're we're very casual 
but in large part our culture is very casual about a lot of things anyway not everything as you rightly pointed out about you know important appointments like with the president um but it's interesting when people talk about the type of churches that we are more often than not you hear words like modern contemporary lively well if that's how people think of us and then it's no wonder that they don't really think that charismatic activity has much to do with our church because we'll be lively whether or not people prophesy or not you know whether someone's speaking in tongues or not because we're still modern and that's what we're here for and on the worship front i think there's there is always that um two-edged sword of novelty and um, interest in newness and the spirit of the age creeping in it's, it's all right to try to play songs that um, speak to the culture and the context that you're in but if but if you're not saying anything meaningful within those songs to God about God drawing on ancient themes rather than always modern themes you're going to end up with a very meager lightweight malnourished people and 10 years down the line you look back and go why are we so half-hearted in our worship it's interesting as you said that example of the president i can imagine you know a wedding for example when the, whoever's conducting the service they say please stand for the entrance of the bride it's perhaps not a, a, a bad discipline to get in as meeting hosts to say right let's stand as we acknowledge the presence of Jesus among us. Um, and, I, you know, and if we want to be really gutsy, lock some doors for 10 minutes because you wouldn't arrive late at a wedding, would you? <laughs> oh, Terry, there's, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we could say. What, what else would you want to poke us with on that front, especially when it comes to charismatic life in churches? I think, I think probably, and again, I'm so conscious that in one interview like this, broad brushstroke, too generalizing, so you have to take what I'm saying or leave it. Um, I think for some churches, they've got to rediscover the presence of the Spirit. And I know when we first got started at Seaford in the, what was it? No, an evangelical free church. And I was laying hands on people beginning to get filled with the Spirit. And that's not what we were, but it's what we became. And, and then what happened was we started, there was already a church prayer meeting, but it was dull as dishwater. It was dreadful and badly attended and bored. And then we just announced there's going to be another prayer meeting. And what happened was the people recently filled with the Spirit started coming to it. And we didn't plan that, but it happened. And that prayer meeting became a context for the presence of the Lord in an amazing way. And the gifts of the Spirit were flowing and the sense of God's presence was quite remarkable. And then gradually that came into the church. Um, I remember once that week saying to that prayer meeting, which became very well attended, I said, you realize, don't you, church could be like this? And they kind of looked at me and said, really? Yeah, I said, you know, son, the church could be like this. And I sometimes wonder these days whether you almost need to find uh, the people who want the spirit and get them together again and and, and get a, a hot center going again mm. and, and then gradually build it into the center. Um, I've wondered about that. Uh, I, I, some of you uh, would have been around when the Toronto blessing so-called happened. And again, the, the years slipped by, it's crazy, isn't it? It was in the last century, so, uh, but it was in the mid nineties mm. and mm. Uh, the presence of the spirit came sweeping through in an uh, unprecedented way uh, and quite quite remarkable. 
And when it first, I was living in the USA when it happened, and it swept into the church that I was in, which was a church that was nominally charismatic, but probably all the things we're saying, it was kind of drifting. Um, when the spirit came that way, people could not get enough of being in the meetings. And it, it didn't matter how long the meetings were. And the teenagers were saying, please can we, because we're, we're beginning to have what they call Jesus parties in their homes. They said, can we use the building? Can we, can we all gather, please? And they wanted extra meetings. And, uh, and the, the, the young people came alive because they wanted to be in the presence of the spirit. And uh, my friend Ram Babu, I don't know if you know that name, uh, Indian evangelist, uh, he, uh, for the last, he wrote to me this week saying it's now 40 days. Uh, for the last 40 days, they've had a kind of Toronto experience. The spirit fell upon them uh, about wow. 40 days ago. Uh, and he, 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 he wrote to me, he said, I don't know what's happening. He said, people are falling over, people are laughing. He said, they're like, they're mm. drunk. I, what, what's going on? He wrote and asked me, and I, I quickly wrote back, said, I said, look, this happened back in the 90s, and I began to just give a few kind of hints and things to him. And he wrote to me this last week, said, it's the 40th day, it's carrying on. And people, wow. you know, they just they just long to be in the meetings because God's coming so powerfully. And, uh, you know, he, wow. he, people are coming in from across India now uh, mm. to come to these meetings because, wow, God's here. And I think it's almost that you've got to rediscover the excitement of God being in the meeting, which we're, we're, mm. we are all, I think we're all ready for that. If only, I think in, in, in churches, New Frontiers churches, I think you don't have to throw the switch, they're up for it. I think people want that. It's not like you'd have to persuade them. Uh, I think they want God. Uh, but I think somehow we've somehow settled in some places, again, hear me, in some places, for less and i don't think mm. god wants us to settle for less um mm. anyway i'm praying for revival and uh, you know Ginny bergen's prophecy about the bonfires that are going to be set alight right up and down the country i pray for it daily god set these bonfires alight and uh, you know god's gathered these bonfires that used not to be there mm. and, and they're there now there's hundreds wow. of churches now that would be ready and when i got started that churches what's going on they wouldn't have been able to cope with it but now there are people who say yes please but they just need it even now if there's going to be a sovereign act of god in what i'm talking about now but i think we need to just get ourselves ready of the part we can play mm, wow it's fantastic um as you're speaking it reminds me of um what dave devon has shared at the new frontiers global um because left to ourselves we can you know you mentioned as well about switching on god tv and there being channel after channel of good bible teachers left to ourselves the holy spirit gives us the gifts of teaching that we need to you know to build churches and we've also some of us got dynamic enough personalities that we can hold a crowd and keep a crowd and dave devonish was kind of poking that slightly saying we've got to get away from the cult of personality that's prevalent in our age and it seems to me that the answer to that in so many ways is being captivated, not with our own personalities again, but with the personality and presence of God among us as the wonder of that, never losing the thrill of what it means to genuinely be the people of God. Not just that we bear his name, mm. Christian, but that we have his presence and his spirit among us. 
And as churches re-emerge from COVID, this is a chance like never before, not only to, to put back into church the, the things that we think are really important, to rebuild things, but also there's a, at least in my heart, a sense of God is going to heal us and restore to us and repair us, those of us who are grieving and hurting and confused from the last nine months to a year. And so it's really quite exciting in that sense, if only we're ready. And I think those there's three things that you've you've shared today, that you're concerns for the church the nominalism the the need to to not just belong to something but to receive someone's authority and gift but also the the life of the the holy spirit and charismatic gifts in our churches those three things are probably well worth pastors who might be listening uh, and individual christians who are listening to think let's re let's recover those three things um let's be disciple makers let's receive people's gifts rather than just belong to that movement or that church and let's hunger and press into life in the spirit and be captivated by the presence of jesus in our churches again uh terry uh, as our time comes to an end is there anything uh, lastly, that's just in your mind that you'd love to share in, in in closing. I'm not sure that there's. Oops, I think we've covered things. You're a very good questioner. You draw out the things that uh, are in one's heart. So uh, I I don't know that more. I think I I still pray for revival, and I think we do need, uh, you know, the desperate need of our nation morally, um, and spiritually. I think of the younger generation being born today. And they've no reason to even consider God, um, you know. They would, well, and so if there's no God, so why not throw away uh, your purity? Uh, why, why have any standards? And I think you know, I just, I just pray all the time, God, please come in revival. And that starts in the church, uh, the church being in love with Jesus and excited about Jesus again. So we come back to where we've just been. So I think it's us being free from nominalism and being excited about Jesus because revival starts in the church and spills over. And so uh, I'm constantly praying that God will come in revival. And I think the nation, um, it's so morally confused and corrupt now and so cynical and angry. Um, I, used to, I used to watch a program uh, about the week's news, what I forgot what it's called now. Um, and uh, it's by problems of getting older, I forget the names <laughs> of things. Um, but it, it always had a kind of cynical edge, but it's just got more and more cynical and negative. And I come a bit ugly, really, just tearing people mm. down all the time. And I think that's the, the nation has just got there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of anger. Uh, uh, there's not, there's lack of corporateness uh, and I think the nation's in a pretty bad way, morally. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the sense of hope, uh, the needs huge, the racial problem, uh, the gender different differences. I mean, massive, massive uh, problems. So we need desperately to see God come in revival because only revival can change that. You can't change it by legislation. It's only the church coming alive and having the kind of impact that make people sit up and ask questions that affect morality. Morality will only change on the back of a, a revived church. Mm. So we desperately need to see God come. Oh, man. Can you tell you what, let's end this podcast perhaps with you just praying for us, praying for our listeners, praying for our churches, for some of the things that we've been talking about now. Mm. Okay. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect and uh, just in your presence, Father, 
And Father, I do thank you so much for the privilege of, Lord, knowing dear friends and churches that you have raised up. We're so we're so grateful, Father, for your incredible kindness to us and the, the stories we can tell of your mercy to us. And Father, we do come to you right now. We do ask you, Father, that you will continue breathing fresh life. We do pray, Lord, for one another right now. Pray, Lord, for many pastors who have found this such a demanding season, Lord. It's so uh, wearing and difficult, Lord, trying to keep in touch, uh, getting weary of Zoom calls and all the stuff that they have to uh, work. Lord, I pray, bless, bless the pastors, bless the eldership teams. I pray that you will keep their morale high, keep their consciousness of your presence strong, inspire. I pray for fresh prophetic words that lift people's hearts and bring us aware that you're in the midst and that you're on the move. We do believe you're sovereign uh, over this virus. We believe you're sovereign in the affairs of the nations. And we pray, God, that you will, Lord, use this in ways we hardly understand. We pray the nation, Lord, will, Lord, be humbled by it. Lord, many who fear now for their jobs, for their businesses, for their future, Lord, I pray, use this to cause many, Lord, uh, to ask deeper questions and ask people uh, if they know God, do you have a, big, a bigger answer to life? We do pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that people might be asking bigger questions about life and hope. And uh, Lord, what are they going to do that they might begin to find you? We do thank you. We hear so many getting saved on Alpha. We pray, get them built into church as we gather again in a few months' time. We pray for a fresh vitality. We pray for your spirit upon us. We pray for great wisdom in handling these things, Father. Lord, I do, I do thank you for, uh, Lord Jesus, this opportunity just to chat. And I pray, may some of the things I've shared bear fruit for your glory. And Father, I pray, inspire, motivate, and encourage us and let your wonderful presence, Lord, oh, please, Father, let your presence overshadow us. Let us know times where we felt interrupted by the coming of God, that the Holy Spirit might be poured out on us. So, Father, have your way. Glorify your wonderful name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh man, wow. Uh, there was so much in there that I found challenging, encouraging, provocative, and hopefully helpful in casting afresh a vision of church life that all of us in the church, if we're honest, when we read the pages of the New Testament, that we're longing for and are believing that God could use us to play a small part in building church communities like it. Well, next week, I'm in conversation with my friend Kieran Dunn, who is an evangelist and part of the pastoral team at the King's Church Mid-Sussex. Kieran's a wonderfully encouraging man and uh, very funny. I'm really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. Here's a clip of what's coming up next week. But I think that, that that's, that's a really key thing, Jez, that just be... Just know that God's love loves you and you can be happy in your own skin. And there's a whole thing about our identity and everything, which we probably haven't got time to go into now. But God really does think the world of you. And actually, you can have an adventure and have fun. So I've found, actually, interestingly, most of my evangelism has 
actually, it's been quite funny. And you know, Jez, I've shared some of the stories with you. And I love, I love laughter and I love fun. And I've, I've realised that there's a huge, hugely serious side to people's eternities. And I'm not playing that down. But I've also realised that people loved hanging around with Jesus and sinners loved hanging around, hanging around with Jesus. And I, I kind of feel like he must have been sort of... It wasn't just... A t- Do you know what I mean? There must have been something about him that was attractive. And I'm seeking, if I can, to make Jesus attractive through, through, through me. Until then, stay safe. Keep loving Jesus, and I look forward to sharing some encouragements with you next Monday here on the podcast. God bless. Goodbye. See you soon.